Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. All right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Noreen Ambrose from Cows and Fish again, and we'll be talking about livestock behavior on pasture and planning for the grazing season. But before we get into all that fun stuff, Noreen, would you mind introducing yourself again and how you got started with Cows and Fish? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Johanna. Uh, I'm based in southern Alberta right now, but I was born in central Alberta in the Bashaw area and grew up on a mixed farm. And I really wanted to work in science, but I really wanted to be relevant and practical and, um, you know, not just sort of science that was for theory, but for utility. And and I think the work I do with cows and fish is really helpful. It's, It's finding practical solutions to real situations like grazing management, for instance, around water bodies. So, um, that's kind of how I got started in a lucky break for me 22 years ago when cows and fish posted this uh, job. Right on. So we're going to talk a bit today about managing for the four principles of range management. Um, but before we get right into that, can you, uh, talk about quickly what those principles of range management are? Yeah. Um, thank you. Four principles would be the first is balance your supply with your demand, as in you can't take more than there is, uh, providing effective rest. So that gives that chance for the plants to regrow and recoup, kind of ready to grow again. Um, Balancing your distribution. You might want even distribution or some other kind of planned distribution. Maybe you want patchy distribution even in some cases. And then avoiding vulnerable periods. So that's looking at sensitive times where you have considerations for the plants or the soil um, that you want to you know, want to put into your your planning. Right, that makes sense. So the biggest one I want to talk about today is even distribution of livestock, because that's one we talk about a lot because it's hard to achieve. Um, Because when you're dealing with actual animals, they do whatever they want, especially in big pastures. So can you talk a bit about um, what the goal is of equal spread of livestock and how maybe we can achieve that in a practical way? Yeah, generally the reason we want even distribution is because we want even use and not overuse or underuse in some areas, right? You're trying to sort of balance your pasture use so that it's to whatever amount or level or percentage that you're happy with and that is your intent but of course cows and other livestock like to make their own decisions some of the times <laughs> and you know hang out in their favorite spots right just like we like to hang out in our favorite spots so um, that means that they tend to overuse their favorite spots close to the gate wherever they were initially put in or near the water and the riparian area near the salt they hang out in those favorite areas because well why wouldn't they if they can (laughs) and so um you know really the ways to address that are a few things but the first one is really trying to fence like with like so you know a lot of our fencing in the past was done on quarter section lines, you know, basically property boundaries that have nothing necessarily to do with the landscape that's getting grazed. It might be half forest, half tame pasture, some riparian or wetland. It might be native grassland. It's a whole mixture of things and they have different um, preferences 
like different kinds of grazing preferences for that kind of forage, but also the topography, right? You get a steep hill and you got a low valley bottom. Those things don't go well together sometimes in terms of encouraging your cattle to use them evenly. Mm -hmm. So really the first thing is fencing like with like, or, you know, where, when you can, obviously that's not always realistic, but um, definitely uh, temporary fencing even can be really helpful if you don't, aren't, you know, changing permanent or perimeter fencing. Right. So are there some natural tendencies of, of cattle, speaking of them kind of doing what they want, <laughs> that we should be aware of when we're working to improve distribution or usage of pasture? Yeah, there's quite a lot of good sort of behavioral research out there um, using like livestock collars and things like that to sort of map out what cows do. And I mean, in general, and probably most people who run beef cattle know this already, but cow-calf pairs tend to be less range, you know, interested. Um, they are, you know, going to use a little bit less steep slopes compared to say, if you've got yearlings, um, they're more likely to be kind of a little wilder if they're heifers and steers who are off on their own. Um, they climb steeper slopes, they'll use more far ranging places. Um, in general, beef cattle aren't going to want to use anything over 10%. And that one to 10% range slope is kind of you know, starts to really see a major drop off. So steeper slopes, of course, deter them. Um, also distance to water. Now, depending where you are, they, they can go long distances, but kind of at the three and 400 meter mark, there's a major, major change in how they spend their time. So they might walk further than that to get water because they have to. But in general, like once you get past that point, um, that's a, it, it totally influences their distribution. So um, if you can plan your water or if you have multiple watering sources or resize your pasture units or, or paddocks if you're using paddocks you know to keep that in mind that that's kind of important um, they also most most um, manure buildup is within 20 to 30 meters of shelter so they're hanging out under the trees or wherever their shelter um, and that's where the manure gets left right so um, that means that's because they're spending a lot of time there so looking for those opportunities or maybe moving them around if you have portable options or you know again how you might want to create temporary fencing um, the other really important thing that the reason I mentioned like with like is the the forage itself changes so not only do you maybe have forested pasture tame pasture and native grassland or any combination of things it also changes over the years so if you have um, a mixture of kinds of forage some parts of that forage are really really palatable in, in the springtime, right? So maybe you've got early brome and timothy, that's really great and they wanna seek that out and they're ignoring some of the um, coarser, rougher grasses that are cool season that grow a little later. Um, but then late season, you have them seeking out trees and shrubs because they have a really high nutritional value. And the grasses have kind of either mostly been consumed or like if you have Kentucky bluegrass, it's not as palatable and it's kind of withered away. Or if you graze in the winter, same thing, that there's a reason that rough fescue is really well suited to winter grazing in the south part of the province and in the prairie parkland um, in the Peace region because it holds its structure um, compared to say something like Kentucky bluegrass if it's in your pasture, which doesn't really hold its structure very well. So kind of really important to look at what you have on your place and how it's related to the other pieces of things you have. So whether it's next to the water that you have, maybe it's portable. The water is the grass might not be, right? So. <laughs> right, that makes sense. 
I know, I can't remember who the speaker was now, but we were listening to one guy talk and he was talking about fertilization. So when you mentioned uh, like with like and how most of the manure is under the shade, he was talking about how, you know, your manure is there. It's just under the trees, not out on your grass where you want it. So if you fence like with like a little bit more, you get better fertilization of your grass. Yeah. And as a general rule, the trees don't want that. Like not only does it result mm-hmm. in additional compaction, um, but they don't need those nutrients. Like you, you look at pastures that have kind of a mixture of pasture of probably tame pasture in a lot of cases and, and patches of, you know, aspen or poplar um, and even willow in wetter areas. And it, that compaction actually is hard on their roots and it keeps down all the seedlings and saplings that would allow for natural regeneration to happen. They don't need the nutrients and they don't need the compaction or the brows or the rubbing because, you know, cows like to rub on things they you know so yeah you're right distribution and therefore that distribution is results in overuse in those places and underutilization, including the nutrients being in the wrong place you know that you could benefit from them being somewhere else yeah so in addition to um maybe moving the water around moving the salt around uh maybe changing your your fencing strategy especially with temporary fencing are there other ways um, that you'd like to mention where you can work with the tendencies of the animals and the preferences of the animals instead of against them? Yeah. So aside from kind of, yeah, the natural system pieces you have, like the type of grass or forage and the where the water is, there's some really interesting stuff that I think is really underutilized. Herd training. So pushing, you know, herding them into the places you want them. Uh, of course, if you're using to find paddocks that are really small and using intensive use, then, you know, you're maybe controlling that, but on, on a more extensive grazing settings, like actually encouraging them and training and, and using, you know, the mothers who've been there before to train their young. And you often hear how somebody buys cows from somewhere else and they don't seem to know how to use it. It's because they aren't familiar with the plant. The plant community can be quite different, let alone the lay of the land. They're not familiar with, they're also different plant communities in the different parts of the province. So that's part of it. There's some really cool research that was done like more than 10 years ago now um, that started in New Mexico where they looked at um, different breeds. So it's kind of the classic hill climber bottom dweller. So Tarantes are kind of now, you know, which is not a very common breed, uh, certainly in Alberta, but Herf and Herfords were compared. So, and then crosses between them, like one quarter and one third crosses and really Tarantites because they come from breeding that was in mountainous areas are hill climbers. They actually spend a lot of time in more rough terrain and steeper slopes compared to Herfords, which were developed in, you know, British Isles, basically in flatter land who definitely spend more of their time on flat and low, low slope lands hence being called bottom dwellers in this study. So I, you can do that, you know, I think with your own herd. And I think it's a really underutilized opportunity to say, well, I should be watching which mother and her, you know, if she's heifers and I'm going to keep those heifers, which ones are on the hillside spreading out or which ones are always just hanging out in the spot that they're already overutilizing. I think, you know, you can do that in addition to you know, looking for breeds that are relevant, you can look at your own behavior of your livestock and your animals. Um, just like you, you know, choose for good feet or good mothering instincts, you can choose for, you know, how they use the pasture too. Another one I would suggest is, you know, even just training on forages. Um, you know, we, we've, we've heard people talk about how they can train on weeds. 
And I encourage them to eat certain kinds of, you know, weedy plants that are, they're not poisonous, they're just generally not something we want in our pasture and encouraging them. I think, you know, that hurting and sort of encouraging to spend time or making them spend time in places with their less preferred is an option. Obviously, you have to give them enough quality feed for their health and well-being, but you can actually get them used to eating things that they're not used to if they came from a different area or are always just avoiding their less favorite things and eating only the ice cream stuff, right? So another one of the main principles of range management is to avoid fragile times of year. But like we've said before, like the plant species uh, and moisture and all of that sort of stuff has an effect on that timing. Like when, uh, when things are at their most fragile. So how should people go about deciding what time to graze a certain pasture? Yeah, it will depend on everybody's goals, right? And But you, you generally are trying to graze it when you have the highest value um, and quality of your forage, but that's not always possible because that's a really narrow spot. You can't be everywhere at the same time as you know, people often find that issue, right? I can't, I can't move quick enough to get to the newest, best stuff. Um, but in general, I mean, you want to, in addition to obviously trying to hit when it's highest value and highest abundance or some combination of those things, you don't want to negatively affect plant vigor. So you want to um, do that and also not affect soil, right? You don't want to negatively affect the soils, which usually is springtime when they're soft, wet, and compactable. Uh, it can happen after you know, a rain event or a high, you know, really moist few weeks of summertime too, of course, or fall, you're trying to avoid damaging the soil and the plants. That's the rationale you want to look at when to graze, in addition to, of course, feed your cows. But um, the, so it's going to be different for each person. But I would say the goal is to make sure that whatever you're taking from the plant leaves enough behind and don't take it from that plant until it's ready, until it's got, you know, enough uh, above ground mass so that it's had a chance to store some energy in the roots. And, and that's true for all grazing. You want to have a healthy plant so it can regrow for the next grazing opportunity. So um, considering things like species at risk or nesting of waterfowl or birds might be part of your consideration too. You know, you're trying to, um, maybe you have an ability to defer grazing in the spring during those early earlier seasons for for other reasons that aren't just you know agricultural grazing related. Um, so those might be other things you want to want to look at. But generally, you want the health of the plant and the soil it's relying on to be maintained. So a lot of people who talk about regenerative grazing also talk about not grazing at the same time of every year. So how would you recommend changing up grazing time of sensitive areas? Because obviously you want to change the grazing time, but you don't want to run into that where you're grazing at a, at a bad time of year. Yeah, I mean, I guess the ideal situation is avoiding sensitive times altogether if you can, but you have to have your cows somewhere all the time, obviously. And, you know, often that means they're going to be in a pasture or pastures at some component of sensitive time, whether that's in the spring or in the fall or, you know, whatever that might be. So um, generally, what I would suggest is a good rule of thumb is if you graze it in a sensitive time, let's say in this year, then next year you want to go past that point before you go back in. So let's say you had to use it your earliest spring pasture, or earliest summer pasture, you're in there this year for that timeline, but you 
should avoid using it in that same timeline the next year and really avoid the same timeline next year in general. But that means you need to actually delay going past it. Because if you shorten it and you go in before you were there the previous year, you're actually sort of adding on top of the sensitive impact because you give it less time to recuperate, right? So you're trying to say, I'm going to give it a little bit extra to recuperate because I was in there when it was sensitive. And that's sort of true for whatever um, timing is sensitive for your situation. Um, I would also say that um, in terms of the different times of year, you end up with a lot of different selectivity, right? So they're going to target different things in a pasture if they're at, at, at that pasture at a different time. So um, that can be a real benefit. You know, you can actually encourage them to use one kind of thing this year and later this year or again next year when you're back in and, you know, they're if they're using it at a very different time of year, they'll probably graze it very differently. Right, that makes sense. And speaking of sensitive times or sensitive areas and times of year, Cows and Fish does a lot of work with riparian areas. So when people start discussing things like managed grazing and fencing livestock out of riparian areas and maybe where the trees are, uh, there's a lot of concern about heat stress and, and shade uh, so how do we manage that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of producers out on the prairie who've no shade and no shelter. Um, so cows can obviously handle it, but um, it is nice to give them those opportunities, not just from um, shade from sun, but also wind protection, right? Mm -hmm. Not whether it's heat or cold or energy loss, you're trying to also make them more efficient animals and, and not waste energy. So um, I think people have really started to recognize the value of natural trees, um, whether that's in a riparian area, a chunk of bush pasture, or it's along your fence line. Um, try not to, again, encourage poor distribution by putting the salt close by, right, or the water, like trying to, again, use those distribution tools in different places, because the trees are, an are a place they're attracted to for, for the cover you just talked about. Um, the other thing is a lot of people are fencing out some of their trees, like almost to create them as a windbreak that's fenced mm -hmm. or a shelter shade area that's fenced. Like they might be fenced at the very edge so that the cows can still use them as a protective um, resource, right? Um, and of course, there's obviously habitat values and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. So that's an option, even if it's temporary fencing, it doesn't have to be permanent necessarily. If you've got an electric fence and you're trying to give them that extra protection, um, at certain times of year, especially if you live in some of the windy areas of the province or those areas that get extra hot, mm -hmm. maybe they're going to seek those areas out more. The other thing is portable. I think that portable shelter windbreaks are like a great tool, just like moving your salt block or your water is. So it's a portable windbreak type shelter that adds wind or, or shade, obviously. Um, and there, there's lots of different varieties out there, but I think that's a great distribution tool as well. Definitely. And it saves your natural trees. Mm -hmm. Better and better. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of times cows like to hang out under the trees or next to the trees because of that protection they provide, obviously, but they also provide forage. So they there's a reason in addition to rubbing and just sort of physical damage that you don't see any branches at the bottom, but they also eat them, right? So poplars and willows and aspen are really mm -hmm. palatable 
um, the young shoots in a lot of cases. And so that's why when you see willows along a stream or wetland, a lot of time they're very mushroom or umbrella shaped. That's not the natural shape of a willow. They should be bushy at the bottom and bushy at the top. Um, but long-term use can, you know, cause that loss. So if you can, you know, increase their opportunity to sprout and have those extra branches at the bottom, um, that, that'll be a good thing for that plant stand long-term and it can still provide forage resource as well. Right. Um, on that note of trees providing forage, um, we have a lot of boreal forest pasture up here in the piece. Um, are there plants or indicators that you really watch out for when you're looking at a, at a boreal pasture as opposed to a plain tame pasture or a or maybe a grassland pasture yeah in in general i would say a lot of our sort of bush pastures ended up end up being a mixture of kind of tame grasses like brome or kentucky bluegrass underneath with mixtures of kind of like wildflowers um you know forbs or broadleaf plants mixed in with the trees so it's hard to tell it's like it, it, because you're you're not it's not like a tame pasture where you can say well i'm going to leave X number of inches or X number of percentage, because you obviously aren't taking the trees and you don't want, you know, it's really, it's harder to see those, the what level of grazing you're at mm -hmm. and how much you've taken. But in general, you should treat them a bit like a native grassland, 25 to maximum 50% utilization of available annual forage. Like that, that's lots because they are more sensitive um, and you will eat out the other stuff so but I would definitely look at woodies so they start eating the shrubbery so things like the Saskatoon and the rose and the dogwood those um, native shrubs will usually be part of the understory as well um, and if that gets to be quite heavily browsed looking like hedged or really well trimmed then they're probably not there's probably not enough other forage resource left for them right um, obviously once you start to see um, a real loss of structure. So there's no, there's trees and there's grass at the bottom or really short broadleaf plants. You've probably had long-term heavy impact of grazing and people often say, well, yeah, but I'm creating more grass. That's what I want. I want more grass. And most of the work that um, public lands has done on their long-term uh, research plots and managing um, and looking at forage production and, and stocking rates long-term show that that actually leads to a decline in your forage productivity mm -hmm. because the diversity of things you have, a whole bunch of different grasses, different broadleaf plants, shrubs, trees, all together actually have more forage on an ongoing basis if you can keep them all there than just having reduced layers, like less stuff behind. Um, and they require no inputs, right? There's no need to add fertilizer. There's no need to, you know, replace it. It's, it's, you know, maintains itself if you keep all those layers intact. So um, it, it's a fine line, but I would say watch for the woodies and, um, and on, on the whole, a light, you know, light intensity of grazing is probably needed to, to maintain all the pieces. Mm -hmm. Neat. So um, on that note of light intensity and, and all of that sort of stuff, let's talk about resting your pasture. Um, you talk, we talk about that at most levels of range management, whether you're conventional or organic or regenerative or uh, any of that sort of stuff, everybody talks about rest. So I know usually the time of like how long a pasture needs rest depends on what's in it and how heavily it's been used. Um, 
So what sort of indicators can we look for to let us know that a pastor has had sufficient rest and we can come back to it? Yeah, so kind of on the long-term perspective, you want to look at, do you have litter or residue that's from a prior year? So if there's no prior year material left, like, so this is assuming you're starting the first time for this year, let's say, if there's nothing left um, from a prior year um, and all you've got is new growth for this year to focus on, probably it was overgrazed because you haven't left anything behind the prior year or you left very little behind the prior year, whether it weathered away or you actually ate it all or whatever your cows did. Um, so that's the first thing, litter, like making sure there's carryover from, from prior growing seasons. But then if you're still using it, like you might be going back more than once in the same growing season, the same, same idea applies. You want litter from prior years, but you also of course want growing residue left from the prior parts of the season, you know, like say in the spring and you're there in the fall, right? You, you want some of that left. And every pasture is going to be different, but, you know, tame pastures can sometimes handle up to say 70% utilization. So you're leaving 25% once you're done, whether that's standing or laying down or, or some combination. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you know, that take the old saying of take half, leave half, is you know it's not precise but it gives you a kind of a, an idea of the reason you're leaving stuff isn't to waste it that allows the plant to regrow and protects the roots with you know the heat and the drying out otherwise it happens on the soil if there's nothing left to protect it so look for litter and previous you know even same season growth also look for browse on woody plants so if you are in a situation where you have trees and shrubs either because it's a bush pasture or it's got wetland and riparian area that are, you know, it's got wooded areas and components. Um, if you see a lot of browse um, on those things that, that that's not, that it's not wildlife because you probably know if you've got lots of deer or elk or whatever, um, you know, that that's a sign that you probably not give it, you've been browsing or and grazing fairly heavily and you might not have had enough rest. You probably need to give it more because they do like trees and shrubs after they've chosen the best grasses obviously right mm -hmm. so um woody use tends to increase when there's not much grass left um or it's not very palatable so either you know it's really late season it's weathered away and in the fall and winter woodies tend to get more heavily used so um but they also might be an indicator you were not giving it enough rest so depends on the situation but those are some things i'd look for um and always, if you're going back in, they have to have regrown. Right. <laughs> they have to have regrown before you're going back, obviously. Sounds right to me. So with all of that in mind, um, what are kind of your top three, I guess, things we should be thinking about going into 2022? Um, now that we've come through the drought, so what should we be thinking about for recovery for our natural riparian areas, especially, but pasture generally? The number one thing I would say is wait as absolutely long as you can to go into these places that last year had a really tough time. There was limited moisture. They very possibly got heavily grazed more heavily than you might've wanted because there was so little moisture and so little forage out there. So wait as long as you can. Every week you can delay in the spring can give you as much as two weeks in the fall or late summer use. So delay as long as you can, feed longer, use other means to, to delay. 
Um, and that's true any year, but especially after a drought, when you really got to give it that extra rest in the spring to recuperate a bit more. Mm -hmm. And then plan flexibility. So like be prepared to move to different spots. Maybe they won't respond as well or as quickly as they would on a normal year because they're slowed down from having been grazed a bit heavier last year and, and are really dry. We might, maybe they're going to be really dry again going into the spring and the soil moisture is just not there. So if that's the case, look at like, you know, where are those opportunities for alternate water? And, and I, that was a big issue last year. It's not, wasn't just the grass or the forage. There wasn't water for cattle mm -hmm. to drink. So I would say, start planning that, that now, if you haven't already and look for like, whether you're hopefully not haul, having to haul water, but where can you get that flexibility with actual water availability too? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Awesome. Um, that's all the questions I had. Are there any resources you'd like to mention before we sign off? Where can we find cows and fish? All that good stuff. Sure. Of course, you can go to our website um, and look at some of our um, grazing management um, documents. Caring for the Green Zone, uh, Repairing Ears and Grazing Management has lots of examples of different sort of timing, different kinds of rotation you might consider. Um, look, we have a lot of our webinars are now on our YouTube channel, so you can listen to presentations on grazing and management of various lengths and types, so there's lots of opportunities there. And, um, and of course, keep listening to the rest of these podcasts, uh, the before ones and the after ones. <laughs> awesome. Alrighty, well, thank you so much, Noreen. This was good as always. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to chat. Always. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening.